This is a Media Lab podcast. No, no, Dave, I'm pretty sure I could dropkick you. Uh, you'd have to use both feet. All right. Well, you, can, yeah. you stand over there. Stand over there. I'm going to walk over here. Yeah. Now you missed. Damn it. <laughs> okay. Best seven out of nine? Would that, no. no. Best seven out of, eight, out, uh, that eight out of nine? Best 8 out of 15. 5 out of 9? 8 out of 15. We need fraction lessons. Huh? That feels boring. This is why I don't gamble. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm Dave. And I'm The Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today we're going to be watching the film Red Sun. Me and my friends are going to put on a little Wild West show play. Some of you might have heard about it. All the hold up. Sir, it's a gift for a present from my Imperial Majesty, the Mikado. Look at the Mr. Derry. As always, a big thank you to our patrons, Green Girl YYC, and it's a conspiracy podcast. You know, Dave, I am very excited about the movie that we're watching here today because it is a film I, A, have never heard of, but B, stars kind of the three huge names in international cinema, at least in the terms of 1971. You have Charles Bronson, mm. you have Toshiro Mifune, what? and you have Alain Delon. This wow. big French actor at the time, beautiful man, all in the easy. same movie. The and pants. I want to quickly go through this about like our relationship with these three actors. Do you know anything about Mr. I'm butchering his name, Alain Delon? Uh, prior to our background research, no. I mean, uh, from the uh, filmography, probably. No, the name itself doesn't ring a bell. So there is a bit of a connection that we do have for him would already. you call it a french connection perhaps <laughs> but nothing to do with that movie he was in a movie called purple noon mm. which we discussed when we did when we talked about the talented mr ripley because he played ripley in that right. movie called right. purple noon which is an adaptation of the same source material so that's where i first saw him and i was like this is a gorgeous man and uh Quite rightly, because that's how he was known to international audiences 
uh, would go into be a bunch of different things. Like he's in The Leopard, which is considered one of the best movies of all time. La Samurai, which is considered one of the best movies of all time. So at the time of 1971, he's kind of almost cresting to being at the a kind big of, deal. Uh, yeah, of a big deal. But yeah, the 50s and 60s especially were well. I don't think he was doing much for in the in the 50s. Yeah, but the say, 60s was young. yeah. 60s. The 60s was definitely his his decade, and then the 70s kind of he trailed off into obscurity. But um, at least at this time, he would be as popular probably as the other two people. Apparently, it became a. A producer and an industrialist so mm-hmm. and i think both of his children are also now actors so why not it's, it's in the why not in the how do you say jeans in french denim le jean well sites tells led to idiots mifune oh, we have to talk about to toshiro mifune toshiro for the Mufet first time the i think best. yeah he is much like we've been talking about how all of these uh male actors in particular of this generation transcend their character etc Toshiro Mufune, for me, uh, embodies everything cool about the Japanese mm-hmm. male archetype. He's basically the Walter Matthau of Japan, wouldn't you Bastard. say? Bastard. <laughs> Bastard. Yeah, so you don't know this because uh, you're not educated, but uh, the Akira Kurosawa, what is it, like 15 films? Oeuvre. Yeah. Yeah. They did like, yeah, 14 films together or, or yeah, something crazy. Built around Toshiro Mufune for a large part. And it's because when he gets in front of a camera... I don't know. He's he's magnetic. He has this incredible yeah. power visually. He really is like the Sean Connery or Warren Beatty. Uh, those types of people is like, oh, I just want to watch you do something. Yeah. I don't even care what it is. I just want to watch you do it. In Seven Samurai, he's pretty young and he plays sort of uh, like a, I don't know, farmer boy. Actually, I'm going to ruin the film for you because apparently you've never seen it. But he's not this like a wizened, uh, educated, mm-hmm. super cool in a reserved ninja assassin he's this rambunctious he's like jumping up and down he looks like a complete fool and yet amongst <laughs> like seven you know broadly and they look more wizened than classically trained actors and Mufun is the one you can't stop watching they're all really cool and they have these great characters written into them but that's just who he is even in an in a great the greatest ensemble cast maybe of any film He's the one yeah, that you like, remember. He's he's something. He's something. I have watched a bunch of like the early Kurosawa films. Like Rashomon is like one of my favorite ones. Uh, he's also in this other one called Drunken Angel that I watched. Too. I still haven't seen that. It's supposed to be good. Rashomon. Oh boy, I share way too much about like my attractions. I think <laughs> on this podcast, but he is so dirty and gross and yet he's like the most attractive to me <laughs> in that movie Rashomon's like why why is it this weird scumbag dirtbag is like oh I'm attracted to this I think it tells you a lot about my relationships oh, he's, <laughs> probably he, he's uh he's hyper masculine but he's not overbearing like oh, we'll talk about him but Charles Bronson sort of just hyper masculine like he looks like he right. would actually punch you in the face and so when you if you like Charles Bronson you like uh, you may not like him as a person, I hope, but you like that type of character because you want to see that person punch somebody in the face. And Mufune can uh, hold up to someone like him, like in a masculinity contest, like he can have gravitas, mm-hmm. he can look intimidating, but he is able to also have such a great emotional center. So I, I watched High and Low, I was crying yeah. in the first half because his rendition of a tortured millionaire who has to make this huge ethical and moral decision uh, you know he doesn't have a sword he's not trying to chop anybody down he, he, right. he's capable of such i mean he's just a great actor so 
I'm in love with him. I think he's amazing. Yeah, he's great. Let's talk about Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson is interesting. I'll say one thing about Charles Bronson. Uh, that man should have made more movies shirtless because uh, he <laughs> he's jacked. So I can't jacked. Can't believe it. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's just a tough guy. I mean, he's not pretty, right? No. But you still want to look at him. That's how you know you, you want to watch him. It's like looking at a, what's that dog? Like a Sharpe. You just, you look at it <laughs> and you can't take your eyes off it. <laughs> Charles Bronson, the Sharpe. The of muscular film. Sharpe of films. But um, yeah, and he's another guy where I don't think he's a good actor per se. He just uh, right. pushes he's through his character. Yeah. So he's an interesting well, guy. The interesting part about this movie that we still have not watched yet is uh, the fact that you have someone who is in The Seven Samurai mm -hmm. and someone who's in The Magnificent Seven, which was an adaptation of The Seven Samurai kind of coming together to be in a movie. On paper, this sounds like the best movie. <laughs> like, it's such a Kyle premise. It's like, do you want to watch, like, a, a rough-and-tumble cowboy and a samurai go and avenge right. somebody, but they also can't trust each other? I'm like, uh, yes, I want to see this movie. Please put it in front of me. And it's going to have Charles Bronson and Toshiro Mifune in front of me? Uh, yes, please. Like, how, how could you screw this premise up is what I'm trying to ask, Dave. No possible way could this... Not at least be interesting. Uh, you could start by calling it Red Sun, which doesn't <laughs> make any sense at all. But yeah. uh, well, oh. we should wait till we watch this film yeah. before. I will agree with you that I'm surprised I've never heard of this movie either. Uh, I, I don't follow Charles yeah. Bronson's uh, career right. other than Death Wish uh, and The yeah. Magnificent I have Seven, big but, problems with Death Wish, oh, but psychotic. we'll save that for a different uh, podcast. This is Charles Bronson. But I will say that if I had done the research already, I think one of the main reasons this is like a spaghetti western, not an American film. And so yeah, it's it, done by the French. Yeah, so it's kind of exists a little bit parallel to the Hollywood we're mm -hmm. indoctrinated with. Otherwise, this thing should be very well known, regardless of whether we like it or not. This has yeah, all the makings yeah. of a classic film, right? Right. Uh, at least by parties involved, if not by content. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's do that. Let's go and thank some of our sponsors and then when we come back, We'll be talking about Red Sun. Dave, all I'm saying is that by pushing you off a cliff, that's a sign of affection. It means I like you. I don't see what the big deal was. All I'm saying is that when I get back up off this thing, there's going to be hell to pay. See if you can catch me. That's all I can say. We are in our ad read section, which means that I am here to tell you that Kylan Davis the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. Dave, how, how are your peepers? Oh, wow. That's very personal. I, uh, it is. Yeah, I'll have to talk to my doctor and get back to you. I mean, why I'm asking, this episode of Colin Day vs. the Machine is brought to you by the Alberta Association of Optometrists, proudly celebrating a century of caring for Albertans. You know, it happens, Dave. Parents can easily miss their child's eye problems. Issues can occur in only one eye, making them difficult to notice. The earlier an eye health or vision problem is identified, the more likely it can be corrected. This actually hits close to home, because I don't know if you know this, I am actually blind in my right eye, and that's not even a joke. I am blind in my right eye because of this very thing, where it was only affecting my right side. Parents didn't know it, my optometrist was a jerk and didn't tell my parents, and so no. I just became no worse bitterness and worse there. and worse. Yeah. Okay. No bitterness there. But this is why you want to go to a great 
optometrist. The ICI Learn program provides an eye exam and free glasses if needed for kindergarten age children. 25% of kids begin first grade with an undiagnosed eye problem. To book your child's eye exam, please visit optometrist.ab.ca. The Alberta Association of Optometrists represents almost 800 doctors of optometry in over 80 communities across the province. Members are highly trained, regulated health professionals who provide primary eye health and vision care to Albertans. Learn more at optometrists.ab.ca. Maybe you should uh, get your kid to go to an eye exam. Well, can I tell you a story, another story about uh, sure. uh, racial problems in Alberta? Oh God, okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh, when Emerson was born... Uh, we got to uh, be referred to an optometrist because our GP didn't know how to perform an eye exam on Asian people. What? Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't understand. They didn't understand what they were looking for because our eye colors are different for pupil oh, dilation. Okay. Yeah. You know who's never run into that problem before? Any other person, any other city, Kyle. So oh, we boy. discovered uh, that optometrists provide free services. I don't know if it's covered by AHS uh, yeah. until your kids are like 12. So yeah, I mean, I'm a big uh, proponent for that. But just so that everybody's aware, particularly because we're talking about this movie, uh, if you want, Kyle, I can go on about being a visible minority in Calgary. <laughs> yeah, got a lot of stories. Well, I got nothing else to do, so I guess we can know. <laughs> All right, let's move on. I am a big fan. I, I mean, we're going to talk about the... Edmonton Public Library, but uh, the Calgary Public Library as well, just so everybody knows, uh, it's a great service and people should all get a card. This other sponsor we have is uh, PodPower. Uh, with PodPower, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a PodPower shout out to Overdue Finds. Let's play on word. Overdue Finds. The D, Kyle. Over to <laughs> Finds is an Edmonton Public Library podcast. Bryce Crittenden and Carolyn Land host conversations about books, movies, music, pop culture, and other interesting news about Edmonton. It's a great way to learn more about what's happening at the EPL and about how you can use your library card to access all of EPL's in-person and online services. To listen and find out more about Overdue Finds, head to epl.ca slash podcast. Oh, seriously. Library, great resource. Yeah. I'm very happy with the uh, Calgary library system. They didn't ask you to get an eye exam when you walked in because they asked me. <laughs> which 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 part? Alberta? I'm surprised Alberta didn't when we moved yeah. here. They're like, uh, I'm not sure you're supposed second. to be here. Wait, Dave, I am ready to talk about this movie because I actually think there's a lot of stuff to delve into mm -hmm. with, with this one here. But I want to know your thoughts first on Red Sun... And why maybe you think that we both have never heard about this movie. I just can't understand how this premise didn't make an instant classic film because... Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, you got a gunslinger, a samurai, uh, a train heist. You know, what could go wrong? What could go wrong, Kyle? Mm -hmm. How do you screw that up? And uh, I, mean, I won't say it's screwed up. It's not the worst movie we watched in 1971. No. Um, it just felt like a lot of missed opportunities. And if it wasn't for Tush uh, Tushir Mufune, his animal magnetism, and him <laughs> being able to uh, have English lines that actually fit the character, are understandable, and work really well instead of getting very awkward. You know, like a lot of 
foreign actors when they can't learn the uh, when they can't learn the English well enough. It, right. it makes it dialogue very choppy. It was weird for me. This is gonna wow. I don't know if this is gonna be su- yeah, super insensitive. Very racist. I was thrown off by the fact that he was speaking English. I just assumed he would be speaking Japanese the entire movie because I just so yes <laughs> I associate him with like being very forceful and like very gruff and everything. So they hear him speak English. I'm like, oh, I was just not expecting that. Well, I learned as we'll talk. I mean, I'll bring it up now instead of bring it up later. But apparently, uh, as he was getting big in Japan, he was asked to do a Mexican film, and he flew to Mexico, oh. learned Spanish, and apparently performed so well that the native speaking what do you call audience. Uh, thought he was a Spanish actor, and wow, he was okay. asked to come back and make more Mexican films, but he kind of uh, moved on with Japanese films at that time, connecting more mm-hmm. with Kurosawa again. But he's uh, he's a fascinating, fascinating human being. Yeah, so I don't know. What's the right way to put it? It it was fine. Yeah. You know? I'm right there with you. I think we're, although I'm, I know, just based on track record, that I'm probably going to be higher as a rating than you, <laughs> it's fine. It's completely fine. There's, I think that the beginning and ending are actually the best parts yes. of this movie. Yep. Um, I actually also have a little bit of fun with the the section that is essentially a buddy picture with him and Bronson. Like, like a, I do, like actually a good enjoy Wild that Rovers. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. It's like a good version of Wild Rovers of them, like really not liking each other and then kind of start to respect each other, even though both of them are like one is trying to kill the guy, one doesn't <laughs> want it so they can find the gold. Like all that tension, I think, is done done really, really well. But something I'm returning to is like, like on paper. This should be a home run with the talent that you have in front of the camera, with the concept that you have that to like biff it this hard. I'm like, I don't get it. I don't understand why this this feels so lifeless for for most of the movie. Perhaps it's like the inclusion of the whole Ursula Andress section that I think adds like honestly adds nothing to this movie other than it's another name you can put on the poster and that's what it is. We we talk all the time about underwritten yeah. females. Yeah, no. yeah, but underwritten females. <laughs> a, she has no story arc really in this movie. Uh, well. She is just there to be topless for a couple of scenes and then be thrown into danger so that they can like have like a shootout scene. There's really there's just nothing for her to do. So it's uh it's disappointing. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Not not a travesty, but it's disappointing. The exact phrase Kyle's parents said when he was born. I'll give not credit, but as far as her character, I'm using air quotes, is concerned, at least she was sort of a feral character that didn't want to follow along. So even though there is a strong implication that she's the so-called damsel in, dis- in distress for the bad guy, you know, she gets them into a lot of trouble because she keeps trying to shoot Charles Bronson, punch him in the nuts, like just try to get right. away. Um, but for the large part, it's a waste of, I mean, I don't know if I would say Ursula Andress is talented in that sense. Like, it's not like putting like an Oscar-winning actress and telling her to take her top off and, and move on. Um, but she's she's got moments where you're like, yeah, she could do more with more. Like, if we could just add one um, plot twist where she even, you know, picks up a gun or like finds a way to get involved with a, right. with a twist. I mean, but it kind her of biggest, like, out. a few years before this, of course, she kind of made a big splash by being in Dr. No. Literally. She's the first Bond girl, right? And at least there, yeah, she has given a bit of agency. She's still there to be saved by James Bond, I get, but she does pick up a gun. She does fend off some people. Like, she's given something to do. Yep. 
other than being just like, well, you're going to be someone to save and then you're going to do a double cross and then we're done. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, home. that's this character. She's, I think I, I've collected, I don't think it's an hour until she shows up in the movie either. That's like right. she's there yeah. pretty late into the runtime. Yeah. It was kind of surprising that she appeared in it at that point. I, you know, by the time they got to the, uh, hotel whorehouse, whatever you want to call it. I thought that was the beginning of the climax and I thought they were about to, you know, meet, mm-hmm. um, I don't remember the character's name, but Alain Dupin. Is that right? Alain Dupin? Alain Delon, Delon, I think is how you... Delon. Um, Alain Delon. And they were just going to have a nice high noon shoot him up. Right. Um, even when he kept referencing, re- uh, Christina. So, Ursulanders is Christina, I think. And, you know, when they first meet her and, you know, that's kind of fun-ish in a tropey sense you know this pr- prostitute who's going to tie them to the main bad guy but it just goes on too long yeah i think it's honestly this is where i stand after thinking about it for a bit i think with a different director they would have been able to heighten this material uh, unlike say wild rovers that we brought in or even big jake from last week i don't feel this is a, a structural problem from the script side of things no. i think that that's fine this is all a directing thing i am going to refrain from the look of this movie mm. because i actually think it's a bad transfer that we watched that's my sense here at least so to pull the curtain back a little bit we watched an itunes copy of this movie and to me it looks like it was a 720 like sd version stretched out yeah. to be a quote-unquote 4k high def movie and just things did not look They're good in this fuzzy yep yeah but this is directed by terence young no Yes, this is directed. Sorry, I just watched a bunch of movies from the Hammer Horror series, which is done by Terrence Fisher, and I keep flipping their names around. So Terrence Young, who directed Doctor No, who directed From Russia with Love, those first two James Bond movies, and having just recently rewatched those, they look fantastic. They look great. <laughs> so unless this movie was given literally no money, which may be also possible, since it was funded by by a French company. I still know that he knows how to frame things and how to shoot things to make them look really, really good. At the same side, I have a feeling that he did not really care about this source material that much. So I feel like if you had gotten someone like, say, a Sergio Leone, or I'm trying to think of someone else <laughs> that around this time, a John Ford or something like that, who I don't think was still alive. But if he was, if you gotten like some of those two people and made this movie like phenomenal and 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 choreograph it i think that you could have elevated this material enough for people to be like oh yeah like this is this is great this is a great movie and as such it's too bad because it does feel very lifeless for the most of it even that ending scene which i'm actually a big fan of like in the tall grass and the fires burning around them it still stays pretty close to the actors so you never get like a sense of the scope of what is going on around this i just think that maybe some more time spent with like storyboarding and really thinking of like, what are some really interesting ways to like showcase these action set pieces would have been good. Um, I will say also shout out to Alain Delon's knees because I'm pretty sure he jumps off a two story roof himself. Yeah. Himself drops straight to the ground and <laughs> falls over. Cause he doesn't quite stick the landing and then gets back up and brushes himself off and continues going I'm like, uh, I would have shattered my knees if he, I had done what you just did. He springs up. Like it, he was like enjoying it. He like hopped up and you can almost see him suppressing the smile because he just pulled off this miracle feat. Um, I, as you know, because you were sitting right next to me, I had to rewind it twice. Like, <laughs> is that actually him jumping down? It's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. Just biffing it completely as he hits the ground. I feel like uh, this has kind of come up, this idea of uh, yeah, framing, cinematography. We are noticing in 71, 
There's a, uh, a mixture of what would become more of a TV sensibility, what was mm-hmm. the classic Hollywood sensibility, like just as far as approaching. Uh, so the hardest part for me to watch is the opening train sequence. And I think, I just, I just don't know why it's shot, you know, shaky cam. It was just very hard to oh, sit yeah. through the, uh, the lead up to the robbery. That gives me, like, like you brought up, you know, the, the tall grass climax scene. It reminded me of a lot of 80s low budget uh, martial arts films. And that's probably to your point. There's something, maybe it's a director decision. Maybe it's a budget decision. You know, maybe they can't afford a helicopter or a crane right. to do a full pan out to see how big that field is. Maybe that's not a big field. I mean, I don't really know the nuances right. of what was going on. And they certainly, actually, the amount of animals they killed in 97, they might've actually started brush fire for this film. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Honestly. Who, what, what do they care? Yeah. There's something about it, the texture, right? The texture of the the visuals feels soft and it just doesn't give you enough to kind of get excited when it's supposed to be a very visceral, energetic scene. There's something very uh, flat. Uh, there's yeah, something very I, I flat think about just, the whole thing. There's some of those decisions and maybe it's unfair to be like, compare Terrence Young to Akira Kurosawa, like one of the best film directors of all time. But like even in a black and white film, like when you introduce Toshio Mifune in... Well, whatever, whether it's the Seven Samurai yeah. or or Rashomon or whatever, it's like whoa! Like he is making an impression as he comes on the screen. And in this one, you're introduced to him as he like lazily walks off a train, and there's literally no impact. It's like no, this should feel like momentous. We are seeing Bronson and Toshiro Mifune for the first time coming together. Like there should be feeling of some weight here, tension. Yeah, and it, there yeah. isn't gravitas. Yeah. Well, and talking about budget, I, and this does become a finger pointed directly at the director and the DP. You know, Kurosawa is not shooting in the 50s with an American Hollywood budget, right? Right. And he's out there. I mean, I was reading stories about both Seven Samurai and something else where, you know, they're out there doing reshoots during the rain. You know, it's not special effects. It's not background stuff. And he can create tones in black and white in the middle of the evening when it's pouring rain with actors like running around in a war sequence. And you see everything, you feel everything. There's movement in the background. There's so much eye candy, tickling, tickling your peepers, as you brought up earlier. Is anyone else turned on right now? And this one, yeah, it's flat. It's fuzzy. Like that scene, like you talk about, you know, we get a kind of a fun sort of Bronson, the lone horseman coming towards the train, mm-hmm. he shoes his horse off and he does the uh, lean back on the wall, one boot up, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And then Mufune comes off the train and you're like, oh. I didn't even realize Toshiro Mufune is supposed to be in this other than the opening credits. And uh, and then you're like, yeah, and then what? He goes on the train. You're like, okay, what was the point of them looking at each other? Nothing's happened. I, I honestly <laughs> feel like the first time they meet should be when he goes in to rob them. Yeah. Like, that should be their, literally their first meeting. Yeah. That's a bag on it too much. But I mean, we talked about it when we talked about um, Call Me Misty. Uh, no, is that right? Call uh, me yeah, Misty? Call Me Misty. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm complaining that with like, call me by your name. I'm like, call me by Misty? No, that's not right. <laughs> Very different movies, those two movies. I'm just bringing that up when we talked about how in that movie, it's like, what are these titles <laughs> in the, in Misty? I had the same thing here. It's like, these are like the bad defaults you would see in like editing software now. It's like, what a weird choice to put these on there. Uh, there are quite a few things that I actually really like about this movie that I want to get into. But before we do that, let's do some of our background information. Red Sun was released on September 15th, 1971 in France, 
However, if we were in the United States or Canada, you would have had to wait until June 9th, 1972 to actually watch it. But its official release was in 1971. It is rated 6.9 on IMDb. Uh, There is no available rating on Metacritic. And on Rotten Tomatoes, this is the very first time this has ever happened. There is also no rating because not enough critics have rated it. Only three critics have done. Two didn't like it and one did. So there's no rating there. But from 2,500 users, it's at 60%. Surprisingly, this is both available on DVD and Blu-ray. And you can buy or rent it on iTunes. I'd actually love to see what that Blu-ray copy looks like. And if it's the same, it's like, is it just a bad transfer? Or was it bad at the time? Who knows? You can buy or rent it on YouTube or iTunes. But in Canada, there is no place for you to stream it. Uh, Unfortunately, this also comes with the fact that I have no idea what the budget was or how much money it made. Because, again, there's no information about this movie. The French don't care. It's about the art. They don't. They have something like there was like there was three million receipts in France. I'm like, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Well, this, You know, (laughs) and not that we'd have access to this information, but I do feel like ticket sales as a volume of viewers would make more impact than dollars. Just because the scale of what you pay... And how they count the money. It's, it's so Money arbitrary. talks, Dave. Money talks. Okay? Here it does. That's why, that's why we're dying culturally, all of us. <laughs> its plot description is, in 1870, a gang robs a train and steals a ceremonial Japanese sword meant as a gift for the U.S. president, prompting a manhunt to retrieve it. See? Doesn't that sound great? Amazing. <laughs> that sounds like a great premise. No. Five it stars. stars Charles Bronson as Link Stewart, Toshiro Mifune as Kuroda Jubei, Alain Delon as Got Gauche Kink. That's right. Link is going after Kink. I'm just saying. Uh, and Ursula Andress as Christina. Five stars. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about these actors already, but was there anything more that you wanted to discuss? Um, I don't know. I mean, the one thing, if people are listening to this and they like Mufune, I had no idea. I mean, so the negative side of this is that it's colonialism. So he was born in China because his parents or part of the colonial group of Japanese that were ruling that part of China. So he was in China until he was 19, which I had no idea. And he only came back to Japan. So he probably knew what, like Mandarin or Cantonese or something I mean, well, it's colonial Japan, so he may not, because you weren't, like in Korea, you weren't allowed to speak Korean. Like, we won't get into that, otherwise we'll start getting upset. Um, But he only comes back to Japan because he's enlisted to the uh, Japanese army during World War II. And it's said that his acting talent for anger comes from him just recalling being in a war, which is why it becomes mm. so visceral. Uh, the only other thing that I thought was interesting is he, his father was a photographer, so he fought as part of a photography unit, and he actually got his job at Toho Studios as part of the photography department. So oh, he never wanted to be an actor. But his friends who are like, oh, this guy is so fucking, he's, he's a piece of meat. They entered him in a talent competition without him knowing. And so when he oh. showed up, because he's like, oh, fuck, like, you guys did this. I'll just walk in and walk out. And that's when it all started because uh, one of the directors was like, oh, my God. Like, he, we may not be the pick him yet because it's just raw. But he's the one who ended up, I think he got him his first feature role. He introduced him to Akira Kurosawa. He just becomes Toshiro Mufune yeah. uh, because he's transcendent. I mean, his friends yeah. are like, well, this guy needs to be on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I get it. Uh, Toho Studios, of, of course, is like huge in Japan, like was one of the first production studios there. They used to make propaganda <laughs> during World it, War II. As we who yeah. didn't at the time. Yeah. So, and Akira Kurosawa would make his first few movies through them too. But they're also known because they still own the rights to Godzilla. Uh, I was like wondering why you knew so much about Toho, but it's Gojira. 
Oh, Charles Bronson is kind of interesting in that uh, it took him a really long time to make it, but he is actually a Lithuanian, which I think is interesting. Yeah. So he speaks like Russian, Lithuanian. He speaks a lot of languages. So he's not a a dumb guy, but apparently his sort of persona, he comes from a pretty rough family. They were poor. His dad was a coal miner. He died when he was 10. And apparently, Charles Bronson started working the mines at 10 years old. Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> he looks like it, right? Um, but he also fought in the war, uh, gunnery, and he has a purple heart for injuries sustained in World War wow. II. So, he didn't fuck around. Well, it's interesting too, because like at this time, we're getting into... I mean, late Mifune in, in this case, because I think he passed away, what, in the early 80s? Uh, Does 90, he not? No, he got to nice, but his last couple years are pretty depressing if we want to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, it gets pretty rough. Um, and then I don't know how long Bronson lasts. I think he gets up into the 90s too. Yeah, but he dies around the 90s as well. I still would say classify this as like late stage for both of them <laughs> in many ways. Well, this is the thing about Charles Bronson that it took him a long time. So after he came back from the war, he tried to be an actor, but... Uh, he has a lot of roles, but he never really got to be the mainstay until he was in his 50s. Yeah. And so there's some reference in memoirs, apparently, that his prickly demeanor is from bitterness that Hollywood wouldn't have recognized him until he was older. So he's just kind of pushed around by a lot of these uh, contracts and agencies for a long time. But there's right. also uh, some anecdotal stories that he may have just actually been like his on screen persona. <laughs> I mean, he worked a coal mine when he was 10, and he fought literally for a gunnery side in World War II. So he's seen stuff. He's not a, he's he's a, seen some he's not stuff. a sweet guy. I'd let him kick me in the face any day. Can, we need to talk about the Delon oh, conspiracy. The murder plot? Yeah. yeah, the murder conspiracy? Yeah, get into it. Um, what's the quickest way to do this? I know a little bit about this because I think after I watched Purple Noon, I read his Wikipedia. I'm like, what? <laughs> what is happening? So, Alain Delon, much like actually all three of the actors are pretty interesting. I, I think ironically, maybe Charles Bronson is the only one who tried to become an actor. You know, you think that would be the opposite. Mm -hmm. But Lillian Delon was just this sort of uh, good-looking guy who was beatnicking a little bit. I think he got he dropped out of college and was just kind of moping around, but he befriended a famous actress who introduced him to a producer. And right. his first Befriended, film was a feature yeah. lead in a French film, which is fascinating. Uh -huh. So he's famous, he's good-looking, he's making all these big French films, but there's this undercurrent that he's connected with the Serbian and French mafias. So he is in bed, literally, it turns out, with all of these gangsters. And the big ploy, as it turns out later, is that they would have sex parties, invite all these prominent people, and his, I, they call him his bodyguard, but I think it's somebody who's running some of this scam. Mm. It's your classic, this might be where this trope comes from. Uh, they would just take pictures, scandalous photographs of all the right. civic leaders. Anyways, while he's shooting, I can't remember which film, this bodyguard is found dead in a dumpster. <laughs> And as they pull apart the thread to figure out what the hell happened, it turns out up and coming, what's this president's name? He's going to be the French prime minister. Uh, shit, I lost the name. Anyways, it's like the late 60s. The guy that's about to become the prime minister and his wife are implicated in this murder because they had attended this party and there's photographs of them uh, getting, yeah. getting it. And uh, yeah, so it's an unsolved mystery until today. And everybody was put out into the press. And the real rumors that this French prime minister had uh, the Serbian gangster killed to protect the secret of his wife's erotic photos from making it into the paparazzi. And Alain Delon was uh, all up in this. He like ran the parties. S super weird. 
very strange guy. Oh, for representation, the reporters were like, oh, it looks like you might have uh, a taste for male sexual relationships. And his response, something like, so, you know, what if I do? What, what I want to do is up to me, you know, it's none of your business, which I think Good is so him. cool. <laughs> he was that I mean, good looking. People are like, oh. I mean, he he still may have uh, gotten someone murdered, but yeah. uh, good for him for like standing up for the kids, homosexuals. Uh, yeah, but he does. Uh, so as far as becoming a capitalist after being an actor, one of his industrial things was to make sunglasses and his brand of sunglasses is the sunglasses Chayun Fat's wearing in Better Luck, uh, in A Better Tomorrow. And became huge because that's the film where the killer's always wearing sunglasses, you know. So that those are Delon sunglasses. It's hilarious. All right. <laughs> Super weird. <laughs> I don't know why this movie has so many writers, but the story is by Laird Koenig. And then the credited writers are Denny Bart uh, Pettyclerk, William Roberts, and Lawrence Roman with additional dialogue written by Gerald DeVries, directed by Terrence Young. Laird Koenig had written one previous movie called The Cat in 1966, and then he moved to TV to work on Flipper for a couple of seasons. <laughs> so he really liked the animals. This was him coming back to film uh, and the beginning of his partnership with director Terrence Young, because he'd write the next few films for, uh, for him. Uh, Koenig was also a novelist, so he kind of went back and forth between writing books and writing movies. The, it has an interesting production history because this movie was originally supposed to be made by Warner Brothers in the U.S. Oh. And there was this producer, Ted Richmond, who came up with the initial idea. He based it on the story he heard from what he says, quote, an East Asian history expert. Uh, Perfect. So I don't know what that That's means. That's how you know but it's real. Probably at, probably at one of Delon's sex parties, they get chatting, you know, and they're like, oh, like... I had sex with this uh, Japanese this. guy, and he told me. Yeah. So what he heard was that there was this real Japanese representative who had been dishonored during a trip to the American West. So he himself, this producer, uh, Ted Richmond, he writes this 15-page outline, hands that off to Laird Koenig, who writes a first draft of the script. As far as Koenig goes, after this movie, his big claim to fame was writing the film Inchon, or Inchon. Mm which was also directed by Terrence Young, which is considered one of the worst films of all time and almost bankrupted a movie studio. Uh, or it, maybe it didn't. I don't remember. Or maybe it did bankrupt the studio. I could never remember if it actually did or almost did. Regardless, it lost a ton of money. Sorry, I'm just trying to remember why we brought up... Was it John Wayne? No. Uh, why have we talked about Inchon before? Oh, it was the Blake Edwards Blake, episode okay. because we were, we were doing different things that had <laughs> caused studios to almost crumble. <laughs> The other writers come from a bunch of different places. So Dene, Bart, Pettyclerk would probably have known Laird Koenig as they both worked on the TV show The High Chaparral. He'd had huge success. Yeah, I'd like never heard of this show in my entire no, life. Think, yep. He'd had huge success before that by working on the long-running television show Bonanza. He was the executive story editor on that. So not quite the showrunner, but kind of pretty close. William Roberts would have been approaching 60 at this point, but had a lengthy film career. His biggest claim to fame would be writing the script for The Magnificent Seven. The most wild thing about William Roberts is that he also wrote the first treatment of the movie Major Pain. Yes, the Damon <laughs> Wayans on. film from 1995. How that fits together, do not know, but he did. Uh, when That's he amazing. was almost 80. That's amazing. Yeah. Lawrence Roman had begun in the 1950s, a, b a bunch of Western and crime pictures. Besides this movie, the only other connection I just want to make is that he would go on to write the movie McHugh for John Wayne, which was just a Dirty Harry ripoff. So a lot of these writers kind of went off and did other things or were coming from things that were pretty well known. 
Terrence Young was also approaching 60 and had begun directing in the 40s. This might be a bit too dismissive, but I would say that we remember Terrence Young today because he was the director selected to make the first two James Bond movies. So Dr. No for Much With Love. Although right before this, he had returned to James Bond to direct Thunderball. And in 1970, he'd made a movie called Cold Sweat starring Charles Bronson. In fact, he signed this three-picture deal of Charles Bronson movies. So I think this is the second and there's a third one that he would follow up with. By the way, the movie Cold Sweat, just reading the plot description, sounds like the prototype for Death Wish. So maybe it was just like a style of picture that Bronson liked to do. This movie had been in production for a while. In fact, it was announced in 1968 that they were going to make this movie with Mufuni attached right from the very beginning. It was always meant to be him in this role. And at that time, producers thought that Clint Eastwood would be in the Charles Bronson role. That's who they approached first and kind of how they were trying to get money for this project. However, again, that was through Warner Brothers. That deal finally lapses. Mafune stays on, but then this French production company comes and picks up the, the rights to it and shoots. The shoot went pretty smoothly, although a huge rainstorm caused an 18-day delay, apparently. And then the fun fact I'm going to bring to you is that apparently... From this movie, sort of, although maybe it was kind of happening around all the same time, Charles Bronson became huge in Japan. Like, the Japanese apparently loved Charles Bronson in his movies. So this movie did, like, so well in Japan. Like, it outperformed every metric that they thought it was going to do. But that's about as much information as I could find. As you can tell, with the little information that we have, there's really been no cultural impact since the time that this was released. But that is... Kind of the background. Like I said, there are some things here, though, that I really, really love. Uh, and why I say that I don't think this is from a script level, because the script level has some really great lines. The one that I just want to uh, deconstruct a little bit is when they're, I think they're in that camping location. You have Bronson and Mifune kind of sitting across from each other. And Bronson says, you understand that if you try to kill Ghosh, I kill you. And Mifune just says, I understand you'll try. And then he continues eating his food. And I'm like, oh, that's such a, like, a great line. You know, I, not to bag too much on this director, but like you said, it's not the movie that's bad. It's not even the performances that are bad. It's just something yeah. about how this is glued together that puts this firmly in the tepid to medium heat range. <laughs> like It just never gets up to that boiling point. So the lines are great. Uh, Charles Bronson and Toshir Mufuna have great chemistry together. They, yeah. They work really well together. They're frenemy, buddy thing. You know, they push each other off cliffs. They try to two foot drop kick each other. It's fantastic. And what's great, I think, about uh, how this is approached. At the beginning, I was a little worried about sort of what the intent was from a racialized sense. You know, why are we using Japanese people? Is this an accurate representation of the Meiji era? Like, why are there Japanese Mm. people on a train in whatever presumptive date this is. There's also a cultural thing where like that first interchange with the food and he's talking about how it smells like a dirty boot or whatever it was. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you get this, I had this worry that this is going to turn into um, like a, a one directional conversation yeah. about culture, but they keep flipping it. So sometimes at the beginning, Tushir Mufune has the upper hand because he's so Zen and he seems like there's this great quiet intensity that he's already seen this shit and he's fine. But then we learn Charles Bronson's character has also lived a pretty tough, badass life. And he starts getting the upper hand in a lot of these exchanges. So uh, it's fun. Like those parts are really great. Some of those interchanges, like when Tashir Mufine, because he's a badass, starts doing a uh, 
mountaintop ice bath in his yeah, like yeah. giant diaper Japanese underwear. And uh, when Charles Bronson steals his clothes, I mean, that those little things are fun. Ursula Andrews does not have to be in that shot. Like that's that's a great <laughs> little moment for those two characters to kind of bond. And all of that is actually really built up well into the great climax because they have to work together instead of being frenemies for a common goal. So irregardless of whether they have agreed of when uh, Alain Delon or Delon, I, can't, I can never remember his name, uh, Delon is going to die. By then, you're like, I just want to, I just want to get to it. It's fun. Like, I want this yeah, to yeah. happen. I think what you're trying to say is that you really wanted this movie to be Shanghai Noon. <laughs> That's what you were really looking for. Well, the other thing I wanted to bring up with Kurosawa, which is fascinating, and Toshir Mufune, is they are trope defining. So all of the films they yeah. make. So the one you watched, I haven't watched it yet. Uh, was it Drunken Angel or whatever? That, Drunken Angel. Apparently, yeah. that's what created the Yakuza film a stereotype. Right. It didn't yeah, exist yeah, yeah. before that. And then all of the uh, summary movies created these westerns. So watching uh, all of these characterizations and then how they influence future movies. You know, High Noon is the lampoon of this kind. Of, you know, uh, sorry, uh, right. Shanghai Noon is a lampoon of this story. Right? It's it's like this movie done even yeah. more poorly. Well, yeah. So. <laughs> And I do want to pick up on a few things you said here. I, I, I think that this is easy to say again in a 2021 context and maybe not fair for something that's being made in 1971. But I kind of wanted maybe a little bit more of that struggle of the East versus West dynamic. Like it's there. It's definitely something that they're confronting a little bit about like, oh, how he's weird and how they do different things. And sometimes it works better for one and sometimes it works better for the other. It's a little side tangent. I do not believe that he would have that much food to be eating. <laughs> <laughs> in his pack but whatever i can i can seven days of food is a lot somewhere. of food yeah yeah a lot of rice Just, you had, like he had like sushi rolls and stuff like, like uh, where are you where are you packing uh, that onigiri, to like keep but, that right yeah, yeah but i do like what you said there i'd like that there's sometimes like uh, mafune gets the upper hand sometimes it's bronson who gets the upper hand and you kind of have that back and forth a little bit where it's like the wiliness of bronson is kind of measured by the i don't know Calm, the, 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 quiet, the calmness yeah, of Mufune. Yeah. So when you see them actually like tag team at the end, like when they stay on the other shoulders, they're like they're doing yeah, this yeah. type of thing. He's like, like uh, oh, he stops yeah, yeah. the stops the arrow by shooting it, and like you know all that kind of stuff is so fun because you, you get the Mister Miyagi thing where you like catches the mosquito yeah. out of thin air with the chopsticks and stuff like that. So like there there's definitely some of those things that that I enjoy. I also really like the the whole conceit of it being the seven days and there's the seven knots in the rope that they're doing, and so he's untying them. Which uh, probably would have been a better title for this movie. So we but, talked uh, about. You call this seven movie Seven Sons, right? Or seven something sons, like that. Yeah, yeah. Holy shit! You know that's instantly better. Red yeah, Sun yeah. does not make any sense in this film. I, at all. I agree with that. It's like it really is a confusing title. Like I know that they're referencing like Japan with Red Sun. That's so weird, right? Because it's not. But in it's like, Japan. but it's not just no. him. Like there's other things. Anyways. Um, it's bizarre. One day I'm going to tie a knot around your neck. We talked uh, also in this last couple of weeks on this Western kick about the myth of the cowboy and how, I mean, the one thing I will say about this, which I like Westerns of this nature, they don't actually call themselves cowboys. They're not trying right. to talk about being a ranch hand. They're gunslingers and they're uh, near-do-wells, you know, bank robbers and thieves. So it's kind of like the... The Ronin, that's uh, a yeah. trope that Mufune created with Kurosawa. There was no movies where there's a, a wily solo samurai who like roving town to town to yeah. like save people. That, that didn't exist well, that, before that. Yeah, so. and that is also, that's another great thing I love about this movie 
is that I like I guess Mifune for a for a bit, but really all of our main characters are kind of bad guys. Yeah, which I kind of enjoyed the fact like Ursula Andress is not quote unquote good. Bronson definitely isn't. Delon definitely isn't. Mifune, yeah, like there's nothing that he's doing overtly bad, but he's not above killing someone if he needs to kill someone. Oh, he kills people. Yeah. Oh, he kills people. Very <laughs> bloodly, too. Again, I'm, I, was, first... I was actually a bit shocked sometimes oh, of like the spurting blood yeah. from like the, the sword and stuff like that. My but, favorite um... death is the first one where he's hiding in the barn. And he, you see that, yeah. that that's the one shot the director got right. It's probably the choreographer. <laughs> he stabs the sword at the camera and then they show the yeah. impalement, you know, with the second cut. Yeah. And I was like, yes, finally, let's, let's go do this <laughs> let's thing with do that it. sword. Yeah. The, that, that culmination, I do like their epic confrontation at the end i think that that's handled pretty well uh what else do i have down here so i think that there's enough things here to say like if you're interested i would give this like for me at least it's not a home run this is like a wavering thumb up if we were on siskel and ebert it's like yeah it's fine the one thing that we have been coming back to the there was the absence in the first two westerns we watched of native americans Mm. big jake last week we talked about the fact that there was but not treated in the best way here we also have Native Americans here, but uh, unless I am mistaken, and I'm perfectly okay if people want to correct me on this, I'm pretty sure none of those are Native Americans that are, that are in that those it's actors are. They tell. all look like white people to me with headdresses on. I but. mean, I think especially, I mean, I don't know where, where this is shot, but you know. I'm pretty sure this is over in Europe somewhere. Yeah, because like that whole, if it's shot in California, that whole thing with the border of Mexico and, and having, you have mm-hmm. several different racial pools to pull from to create a so-called uh, Indian looking actor. But if you're shooting this in Europe, they're likely, you know, not Native American people, but it's hard to tell because mm-hmm. they don't have a lot of screen time um, other than sort of pantomiming being crazy. And uh, I, I don't know. I think as you go from different climates down to the south, I mean, what, is it, what does it mean to look, you know, it's dangerous sure. territory at that point for us to comment on what looks more real. I did Google the Cherokee and to understand why they named a specific tribe in this area. And, you know, like all stories and myths about uh, First Nations people uh, in Westerns and how they're all savages and fucking, you know, pillaging mm-hmm. towns. And of course, those are exaggerated. For a large part, so no. <laughs> uh, so the the depiction of this era is always hard to kind of digest. Uh, I think if you're in the '70s, this is what you'd expect. At least they're trying to pretend they're speaking to each other in some foreign language. But yeah, it's hard to watch. Uh, I think the biggest thing I want to pick up from what you mentioned here before is so we've been talking about the myth of the cowboy over the last couple of episodes but i think it is appropriate at this point to also talk about the myth of the samurai because they feed in on each other right we talked about how kurosawa is like trope defining with his samurai pictures which are these prototypical westerns for japanese audiences and those definitely influence later westerns over in america and the westerns in america influence the other samurai pictures that are happening in japan so it's this weird interesting I'm going to use a fancy word, Ouroboros, of like a a snake eating its own tail type of thing. But just like how the cowboy, as presented in in most American films, is like a gross exaggeration of what the cowboy lifestyle was, I find so too are the samurai pictures of like this lonely nomad going between towns and like seeking righteousness. Like most of the time they were hired by a specific wealthy person to be their bodyguard, is from what I understand what they were doing. Well, 
I mean, first, I guess the, and I, we're not academic researchers of any of this stuff. Oh, I am. That is what I got my PhD in. Uh, Uh, But the, I'm actually the expert in East Asian (laughs) history. The first uh, point is that Kurosawa created the myth of the Ronin. So in feature film, so this, this gunslinger with a sword is a Kurosawa creation in film. And so all of the later spaghetti Westerns and the man with the no name and Charles Bronson in, uh, I mean, he was offered that Sergio Leone film. So he did the one before that. Those are, like you talked about, um, created by a different culture's representation, propaganda of what it meant to be a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. Samurai, historically, it's kind of weird. They existed, you know, but they are largely bureaucratic. And by the time 19th century is around, they are not fighting each other at all. They're basically bureaucrats who wear swords. Many of them apparently uh, were completely incompetent in war because they haven't Mm -hmm. had to be fighting. They've been under one monarchy, uh, an imperial emperor rule uh, empire, uh, for almost, uh, not 400, uh, 250, 300 years at that point. So I was thinking in a rewrite sense, it would have been neat if the uh, diplomat and the other samurai were depicted as cartoonishly incompetent uh, Japanese Mm. people. And Mufun is just standing there as sort of this uh, reincarnation of a time, you know, in the 15th century where all of Japan was in a series of civil wars, much like the rest of Asia was, uh, where all of the samurai were trained to actually kill themselves and kill each other. Um, The idea of seppuku or harikiri is actually uh, largely exaggerated. There are not a lot of uh, diplomats and uh, warriors who actually killed, disemboweled themselves. Uh, They would often just join a neighboring group. Uh, so all of those things are fascinating. You know, there were gunslingers in the West, but calling them cowboys and making them heroes is uh, part of the propaganda, part of the political influence to define what it meant to be a, a Japanese or a, yeah. an American person. I guess what I'm really wondering, and like we have no authority in this because it's not our oh, culture in any yeah. way, shape or form. Yeah. We have a podcast. I, I'm so curious if the idea of like the samurai or the ronin has impacted the way masculinity is seen in Japan, the way that cowboys have affected it in in the West. Yeah, that's tough. And that I don't know. I literally have no idea how to answer that question. The only, I mean, the major difference with all Asian and Western cultures is that the role of sort of this Confucian hierarchy of leader to bureaucrat, father, sons, mother, women, you know, all this stuff, is much more rigid and group-oriented. So in Asia, amongst most, I think all Southeast Asian cultures, the family supersedes personal interests always. And it's only in very modern, so post-boomer time that we're seeing a huge pushback. Uh, But if you go to Korea right now or watch any K-drama, that is one of the central uh, tensions is the impact a father or a mother's influence has on a 20-year-old beautiful Korean boy trying to have sex with a bunch of women is the family always takes a a central piece. Like watching Parasite, that is a movie about the impact of family and uh, how you, so it's not just about class warfare, you know, just how this all trickles down with the relationship, how the father is weak. And so the whole family becomes corruptible. Uh, Those are sort of Confucian ideals. So the unique thing about Japan, and I study this a little bit in university, is that they fundamentally believe at least up to World War II, 
that the emperor was in fact directly descended from the sun goddess. That is a fanatical baseline concept that starts their culture from, uh, that they start their culture from. And I think that there are remnants of that today. They have a fundamentally different way of viewing themselves and how they fit into their society than Western cultures can comprehend. And I think that is one of those major conversational barriers. Uh, it's one of the reasons I think that Japan has been able to hide in ignorance about the atrocities they performed during their colonial mm. and World War II period. Because as soon as their uh, government says, well, it's just part of our history, so we don't need to worry about it too much. Everybody's like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're a superior country that's existed independently since whatever, like 580 or uh, whenever it is that they established themselves. So uh, it's different. Uh, Americans are very good at lying to themselves, but it's in a fundamentally opposite way. It's all about the illusion of independence and the idea that I can do whatever the fuck I want without any consequences because I have more money or I have a bigger dick or I have more land. Um, and that's poisonous on the other side too. So I want to talk a little bit more about dicks. I think every episode should include some dick. So I, what this gets all wrapped up into because weirdly enough, and you're going to laugh at me because of course I'm going to make a musical theater reference, but uh, I have to sing it. Uh, yeah, on my other podcast right now, putting it together, where I'm going through the entire body of work of Stephen Sondheim, show by show and song by song, uh, currently we're in this very unique show that he did called Pacific Overtures, which is all about the opening up of Japan after they had been um, isolationists for so long, and you have Admiral Perry. It's also a very weird show because there's really no characters in it. It's all about ideas, which is probably why it bombed uh, so badly, but there's some great stuff to talk about. But what I've been learning about that show and like how Sonny was constructing lyrics and how he's utilizing actual history within those lyrics is that idea having this choice of being like, we are this autonomous nation who have chosen to be this island floating in the middle of the sea to being forced to open up by the US, but then being like, how can we use this to our advantage and being like, okay, if you're going to force us, we're going to do it. But then how can we then still come out on top and that's kind of what they were struggling with because that music comes out in 1976 so uh it's right in that kind of that thrust of japan being like the leader in technology the leader in business the leader in car manufacturing the leader in etc 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 all the way down the list and it's interesting to see this movie through that lens too which is like oh these are that contingent of coming to the president to learn a little bit more about this nation that they can then take back potentially and like learn more um, about this occupying force that's sitting outside them with the four huge warships. I guess all that to say, I wish there was more about that kind of idea in this movie, which not just East versus West, but also like imperious nation with like, and I know I'm asking too much for a 1971 movie in many cases, but I think there's just so many of these like little things that could be dealt with within the framework of the characters that they've already set up. I can't necessarily footnote this, but the Meiji era begins around 1848, which is pretty early. And when you're the events you're talking about, which is the encroachment of the West and the Japanese, they're the all this way they became a colonial power. They were the only na Asian nation that saw the power of the oncoming uh, Western colonials and said, we need to do that instead of how do we right. protect our own uh, guard. That right. is actually the age where the samurai disappear. Thank you for bringing that up because I knew there was an actual bigger point I was trying to make. But yeah, they understood like, oh, if we want to get ahead, Get rid of the samurai. Yeah, we need guns, we need militia, we need, uh, mm -hmm. you know, not just army, but we need industrialization. They're the first to build railroads, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
uh, yada, 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 since we referenced Seinfeld a little bit. No, that was Big Daddy. Who cares? They can't necessarily approach those cultural issues, A, because they don't want to, but B, yeah. there's no way I think that a samurai should even be involved in this story, like if we're going to be historically accurate. I'm pretty oh, sure by yeah, the yeah. time uh, the US is involved in uh, diplomatic relations, all the Japanese people are wearing suits and and you know yeah, they're all right. uh, sort of traveling the bo- uh, bowler hats and stuff. Yeah, they would have probably been wearing. Yeah, yeah. And this is the era of uh, Tom Cruise, where the samurai are now uh, restricted. The canonical last samurai to yes. uh, small or uh, Keanu Reeves, I think, in Forty Seven Running. But this is an era where the last bastions of the samurai culture are starting to become uh, essentially on reservations. I mean, if there's a direct correlation to anything, it might have been the other way, where they're kind of getting. Uh, essentially put into small villages because they refused to become colonialists themselves. And, yeah. Yeah. and they ended up, uh, there was one one attempt at a revolution, which is the historical basis of the last summary film, where they tried to actually create a coup and they get uh, killed by guns, imagine. Swords imagine apparently that. are not as good at killing as guns are. They say that. <laughs> they say that in this movie, actually. That all is true. And at the same time, I want someone to write an alternate history that has this exact same premise, but do it better. Yeah, this, That's basically what I want. <laughs> this is where this movie could have been really cool and should be remade. This would make a great anime, right? And I'm sure oh, it yeah. has been. I mean, I you know, Cowboy Bebop, for example, is like the best show ever made and it's this tone. But uh, you just need that. This needs to be, I don't know, campier, but it needs to be more extreme because- you have a gunslinger samurai. You can't play this undertoned. Like this has to be right. big and yeah, uh, I, I agree. Like loud. you kind of have to dial this up. Like this has to be at 11. Yeah, I think <laughs> the, so. The entire time. I think that was the, what's yeah. missing is that it's just very muted and fuzzy. There's just something weak about the directing. <laughs> I called you out, Terrence Young, even though you're dead. We're done here. The machine said that we do have to wrap this up. Neither Roger Ebert or Pauline Kael reviewed this movie, nope, from what I can tell. Nobody watched this. So film, yeah. probably nobody watched <laughs> this. So the two two of the critics that were on that Rotten Tomatoes page, one was Dick Lotke from the Los Angeles Free Press, says the acting is about what we have come to expect from the international celebrities involved. He did not like this movie. Oh wow! And then Simon Foster that guy's from, wearing a uh, MAGA what, hat. Did he uh, did he type this from? Uh, <laughs> TrumpLovers.com. I don't like this Lithuanian actor that's trying to become a star. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm watching this gave me COVID. The other person is Simon Foster uh, from a website, sbs.com.au. So I don't know if it's Australia. Australia Yeah. 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 Red Sun is a perfectly enjoyable character-driven adventure, which is about as positive as I could also say. Yeah, that's kind of okay. Does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant, Dave? I don't know. I mean, the film itself, no and no. Uh, the potential, yes. Like, you could make this film today with a competent director. I mean, you'd have to find good enough actors to, like, make this work. Mm-hmm. But it's just cool, right? The idea of it's really cool. I think it could be very timeless. The idea of a buddy cop, frenemy thing is done to death. So, we know that people still care about it. We had this great opportunity with great character actors, like this review said, to make this work really well. I mean, every... All three of the uh, bad guys are great. Mm-hmm. The way this wraps up with the way everyone dies essentially is fucking fantastic. But this movie is so boring and uh, not boring. What do you call it? Uh, flat. It's flat. So this is flat. I would not recommend necessarily anyone to watch it. Don't pay to watch it. But there's uh, <laughs> there's there's some perfectly watchable pieces of it. Yes. I I agree. There there's a flatness to this. I 
I'm agreeing with you. I'm a no and no on this as well. Although I do like the movie. Like, I don't love it, but like, that's what I said. It's like a slight thumb up for me. Uh, uh, I don't know. A, 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 a regretful tipping of the thumb. <laughs> we're, ha- we're happy to have learned about it. How about that? Yeah. yeah. that I agree with that. And I think the biggest thing you said, there have been a few films that have been remade from 1971. There are a few films I've called that's like, I think you could remake this and it might make a better film. This is the first one that's come up that I'm actually demanding someone remake this because right? the idea is so solid that it should just be a home run. You have to make this to make it work. You don't even have to tweak the script like that much. I mean, yeah, you have like, to rework really. Ursula Andrews' character a little bit so that either you pull her out or, or you give her just a little bit, like just uh, more impact on how Or make her thing. part of the shootout at the end. Yeah. Like just the four people coming together. Which is right? very easy to do now. Or you could even now, you could probably turn uh, the bad guy into a woman. Who cares? Like you could do uh, the representation piece better, but the lines are still pretty slick. You could you could have all the action sequences essentially be the same. You just need this to be shot like a film instead of a home video. And yeah. uh, <laughs> if, if you can believe it though, like legendary film director John Huston is quoted as saying that this film, along with Red River and Stagecoach, are the three best westerns ever made. I mean, that's saying Which something. Which is interesting. Yeah. That's saying something. That's John saying Huston something. was on the side of this movie. Um, I'm very interested to know what your rating is going to be, but that is what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. You can also go over to our YouTube page. You can click on the link in the uh, plot description. Sure. Show, notes, show notes. In the show notes show below. Notes. And if you want to see the entire list of films that we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash KDBSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes for this episode. And you can support for as low as $1 per month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Um, I I should mention, too, uh, we are doing a bonus episode every month over on the Patreon. Still talking about films of 1999 over there. And we just talked about the uh, Adam Sandler, I guess we can call it classic, I don't know, called Big Daddy. So there'll be a, a, a quick little snippet that you'll hear at the very end of this episode for that. But uh, that's some of the stuff that you're missing if you are not supporting us over there. Let's get to the rating of this movie, though, for Red Sun. Dave, out of five, what would you give this movie? I have no idea. Like everything, I'm of two minds, which is this is a little bit the opposite. The potential, I liked all the actors. I like the story. I like... Uh, the short length. This is not something that drags <laughs> your face in the mud for three hours. Yeah. But I hate this director and I hate the way this thing's glued together. I hate a strong word, but I just didn't enjoy the way this thing was glued together. So, yeah. Again, I don't, I don't know, know if it's a transfer or not, but like I just find this to pop and like it never did. Yeah. Like there's never anything like, oh, well, like this is, looks beautiful. It's not even like uh, the restoration piece, which is a huge problem. But yeah, even the way they're set up and blocked, like all of it, mm. there's just something. This is kind of what I was saying about Wild Rovers. Is like I don't like that movie, but it's like at least the vistas as they're walking right. through them endlessly is like at least they're framed nicely. Yeah, it yeah. looks cool. Like yeah, yeah this is like the inverse of that. So I I feel like I don't know. You tell me where where are you at with it? I I'm stuck, man. I I don't know. This is this is the classic Kyle rating where I'm super medium on something. 
Uh, I'm giving it a three. Yeah, like I, I'm slightly positive on it. Uh, as a Dave rating, I would say you're looking probably like at a two or two point five is probably what you're really looking for. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm giving it a three. No, I, I was thinking two, but I just I don't want to disrespect Mufune. Bronson right. or Delon that much because I actually like them I think, a lot. I think it. you were actually quoted as saying at some point in one of these podcasts that Mafune at bare minimum is a fifty percent. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so yeah, he's he's amazing. Now let's do two point five. Uh, okay. Again, the asterisk is if you're listening, you don't need to pay for this movie. If it ever streams, which it never will, this is a streamable <laughs> movie for sure. You know, if this popped up on yeah. Netflix, it's you could watch it. It would be fun. Well. Dave, that does mean it is tying with two other movies, mm. and th- this is going to be a conversation. One, I know for sure you're going to put it above, but that is tying with Sunday Bloody Sunday and A New Leaf. That's definitely And I think you and I are both aligned in saying that Sunday Bloody Sunday is the weird movie where I've liked it more the longer we get away from it, yes. so I, my rating might be a little bit lower than what it should be, but I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it is above in the middle or below those yeah, two. That's tough. I mean, it's definitely better than New Leaf. You know what? You know what the problem is? I keep thinking of the potential of this film and not the film itself, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So I think right. it needs to go below Sunday Bloody Sunday. I, I yeah. think Sunday Bloody Sunday is a much superior film in every aspect except the fourth wall break and the pontification. That's the very end. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. But it, like you, like you point out, I remember almost everything from that film. I mean, that's something. Right? Uh, we could still talk yeah. about Sunday Bloody Sunday today and have a fairly accurate discussion about almost everything that happened in that film. Yeah, I think it's too, super relevant, <laughs> that movie, even to modern audiences. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's a shame that that movie, that is the movie I think so far this year has been like the um, lost classic in many ways, mm-hmm. where it's like more people should be talking about this movie yes. that, than, than what I see. Than uh, so, Dennis. Which we, we get a lot of views on on YouTube. <laughs> we get a lot of views on YouTube about how that's a, a, an amazing film, apparently. So, it's not, by again, the way. Remember, the movie's that a piece of only, shit. Don't watch it. <laughs> we've only talked about 27 movies so far this year, Dave. Busy. But that means that Red Sun is going to be joining the list at the number 12 position. Oh, it's high. Is this my fault? It's right yeah. in the middle. It's right in the middle. That's like literally right in the middle of the entire list. Yeah. So, I wouldn't mind being in the middle of an orgy with those four actors. So I guess we should find out what we are going to be watching next week, Dave. I feel very Push dusty. Here. Can we get out of the West yet? Or? Uh, apparently not. No, we are still going to be stuck in the West. Dave, the movie we're going to be talking about next week actually goes by two names. I think the more fun name is Duck, You Sucker, <laughs> with an exclamation point at the end. All right. Uh, it is also known as a fistful of dynamite. Right. That is also one of the names that this movie goes by. But regardless of what you call it, that is the movie we're going to be talking about next week. Do you know anything about that? No, I mean, I recognize the name. I have not watched the film. As far as I know, it is a Sergio Leone picture, yeah. which means that we are going full spaghetti western next week, which also probably means that, that movie is like three hours long or something like that. Right. Is probably what that means. I mean, these chaps are starting to wear thin, but uh, okay. just for this podcast, we'll ride it out. I think we're we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, Dave. I think we're getting to the end of our journey. We're going to be able to sidle up to the saloon, have some sarsaparilla. What is then, sarsaparilla? Uh, is it a tea? It's like root beer. <laughs> Gross. Literally. Root beer is disgusting. You can, get, you can get alcoholic versions too, but like it's basically just root beer. I hate root beer. What? Okay, that's worth fighting over. <laughs> Is 
is anyone else turned on right now? For number one, Steve Buscemi is the funniest part of this film. Uh, every scene that he's in is actually funny. What a sport. <laughs> Can I just say, like, Steve Buscemi is, I think, one of the best American actors. And he's like, you want me to be like a fucking weirdo in your stupid comedy? <laughs> no yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, no problem. I'll, be, I'll come there for a day, knock out my scenes and go home. Yeah, whatever you need. Whatever you need. The old man, who I think he's been in a few Adam Sandler oh. movies. Fucking amazing. But here- Which old man are you talking about? Uh, the, the drunk that's in the bar and- Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. But he, I want to talk about the other old man. Uh, uh, he reminds me of a cross between Steve Buscemi and then, uh, what's his name from- uh, always sunny in Philadelphia. David, whatever he's he produces. He's uh, cricket in sen Sunny. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, uh, he's also in uh, Myth uh, the, Mythic Quest. The new Mythic Quest. Yeah, yeah. That, if you crossed him and Steve Buscemi into one uh, crackpot character, that's the vibe I was getting from the uh, drunk old dude in the bar. Which old man are you talking about? So the old man that his girlfriend starts to date. All oh, right. Yes. Okay. So I didn't mention him in in that like little rundown there, but. Uh, his name uh, is called Jeffrey Horn. I went down a huge, huge rabbit hole. I was like, what? has this guy been in anything else? Big Daddy is the last movie he ever appears in. However, and I think he's still alive, but uh, did a bunch of TV stuff, a bunch of movies in like the Ooh. 50s and 60s. But he was essentially the guy who took over for Lee Strasberg at the actor's studio. So oh, wow. he's like this like big proponent of like the method and taught like a bunch of great American actors. And he shows up in here in like this weird little bit part. I was like, what are you what are you talking about <laughs> that this is what this guy was doing? And he shows up in Big Daddy. Why? 